שלום. Due to an accident, a pastor has to have all his remaining teeth pulled out, and a new set of dentures were made for him. The first Sunday he preached after this happened, he only preached 10 minutes. Second Sunday, he preached for only 20 minutes. But on the third Sunday, he preached for well, it did not take long for the church members to start grumbling and mourning about the length of his last sermon. One of the church leaders decided to have a quiet word with him and ask him about the various lengths of his last three sermons. This was how the pastor responded. Well, on the first Sunday, my gums were sore that it hurt so much to talk, so I had to keep it short. The second Sunday, my gums were much better, but after talking for a while, my dentures started to hurt. And so once again, I needed to finish early. But on the third Sunday, I accidentally grabbed my wife's denture and I that's why I couldn't stop talking. Now, all of you who want to complain about my lame joke, uh, please see me after the service. <laughs> we like to complain. It's a deadly disposition that we all have. We like to complain about everything, including the pastor's sermon and his lame jokes. Now, Numbers chapter 11, our scripture text today as we continue our study on the book of Numbers, is the story of the complaint of the Jews as they were on their way to the promised land. Does it sound familiar? The Jews were complaining again. It's deja vu, isn't it? But, but incessant complaining, constantly griping, pinning all the blame on others, is a sign of a holy discontent. And listen to this. No only a sign of a holy discontent when we always grumble and complain, but you will be matched by dire consequences from a holy God, as we will see this morning in Numbers chapter 11. So I believe that Numbers chapter 11 is as relevant for us in the 21st century as when the Israelites began that long migration across the desert into the promised land. So first of all, this morning, let us look at the disgruntled people. The disgruntled people. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1 to verse 9. Let me read for us. Numbers chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships 
in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Tabira because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rebel with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we have meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, Greek, leeks, onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We have never seen anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or make it into cake. And it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. The delivered people of God had now become the disgruntled people. You recall that God had brought ten plagues upon Egypt to force Pharaoh to let his people who had been under bondage for 400 years as slaves in Egypt to go. You recall that God had parted the waters of the Red Sea to give them access to leave Egypt. They cross on dry land, Exodus chapter 14. You recall that God had provided water for them when they were thirsty, Exodus chapter 15. You recall that God had given them bread from heaven to eat every day so that they would not go hungry, Exodus chapter 16. And God had begun to teach them His law and to give them His instructions on how to build a tabernacle. And after the tabernacle was completed, God's glory was seen as a cloud descended on it. And after that, the cloud led the Israelites through the wilderness, reminding them of God's presence with them, Numbers chapter 9. And the second year after they came out of Egypt, on the 20th day of the second month, the cloud lifted and Israel set out towards the promised land, Numbers chapter 10. So that's a quick summary of God had chosen Israel as his own people, delivered them from bondage in Egypt, and had not failed to provide for their every need. And now they are on their way to the promised land. Things were looking hopeful. Or was it? Was it? Look at the opening verses of number chapter 11. In verses 1 to 3, they were grumbling about life's difficulties. And in verses 4 to 9, they were grumbling about life's deficiencies. Israel was so quick to forget. The grumbling that had characterized Israel when they first came out of Egypt had started all over again. It's deja vu. 
You see, God's way to the promised land was through the desert, through the barren wilderness. And the people mourned first about what life had done to them. They griped about life's difficulties. They whined about everyday hardships of their desert journey. But God's way to heaven is always through hardships, my friends. God's way to heaven is always through hardship. Acts chapter 14 verse 22 says, We must go through hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 14 verse 22, We must go through hardship to enter the kingdom of God. Next, they moaned about what had been denied to them. They griped about life's deficiencies. Their first complaint was about what they had. Hardship, difficulties. The second one focused on what they did not have. All this appetizing food that had been freely available during their long 400 years of captivity in Egypt, which contrasted with the, the plain desert manner that they were eating every day. Now, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know what? I just can't understand this. Why would anyone yearn for leeks and garlic? Yucks! But that's what disgruntled people do. Huh? Quick to forget and are ungrateful. God had previously generously provided for them. Not a single day had that lacked anything they needed. Food, drink, clothing, protection, hope. And yet here they were wistfully recalling the superior fruits of day gone by, the lakes and the garlic. And notice that the people complained, verse 1 says, was in the hearing of the Lord. All complaining is in the hearing of the Lord, because all complaining is outward and loud. As I told you already in Exodus chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16, when the people complained about water, about manna, about meat, God graciously met all their needs. But now they have experienced a year of His gracious protection and guidance through the cloud and His provision of manna and water in the desert. So now when they complain, the Lord was angry, we are told. But in his mercy, he only sent fire around the outskirts of the camp, which consumed some of those who were complaining bitterly. So make no mistake about it. Huh? What we are noticing here is that this is not just an occasional grumble. This is a human disposition and a deadly one. Here, in fact, I would say it's an open rebellion. And God responded. The people called on Moses to plead with God. Moses prayed and the fire died out. 
Now listen to me very carefully, my friends. If we think that God's plan is to give us health and wealth and to protect us from all trials, then we will be prone to complain like the Israelites did when we face difficulties and deficiencies in our lives. To give thanks and not complain when we face difficulties and deficiencies, we need to remember this, that God's purpose in calling us to faith in Jesus Christ is to confirm us to the image of God and not to make us comfortable and to protect us from all hardships. Do you get that? God calling you and me to salvation in Jesus Christ is to confirm us to the image of Jesus Christ, not to bless us with health. Celebrated American writer and humorist Mark Twain said, the more I learn about people, the more I like my dog. The more I learn about people, the more I like my dog. Is it any wonder that God got angry with those disgruntled people? Now next, I want you now to pay careful attention to what will happen to your leaders, especially when you gripe and whine all the time, as evidenced in Moses' leadership. So next, we have the despairing leader. When you have the disgruntled people in the church, you have a despairing leader. Verse 10 to verse 15. Let me read beginning with verse 10. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms? You tell, as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on earth to their forefathers. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. Here, Moses faces the frustration of leadership. So listen, my friends, pay careful attention. Eh? Pay careful attention to the dire consequences. If we are complaining all the time and grumbling all the time, there will be dire consequences. So pay careful to the dire consequences when you grumble and complain, because when you are disgruntled, your leaders not only despair, as you will see now in what my main point here, number two, but it will also incur God's divine wrath, as you'll see later in my point number four. Verse 10 tells us that Moses was greatly troubled when the people complained. In acute distress, the leader took the people's problem upon his own shoulders. The people's discontent became a personal injury, became a personal despair. Now, we must be quite clear about this. Moses was not remotely troubled about his food, but he was totally exasperated by his work. And he too became a victim of serious discontent. 
And that's what we read here in verse 11 to verse 15. Greatly troubled, a flood of fretful questions spilled out of his lips. Verse 1 to verse 15. So much so that Moses even desired death from the hands of the Lord. Verse 15. He said, I must all die. <laughs> if this is what you're doing to me, Lord. Now, some of us may be surprised by Moses' response, right? But let me tell you this. The Bible always tells it as it is. Okay, the Bible always tells it as it is. The Bible inspires us with the heroism and faith of its finest leaders, but it never fails to exaggerate their finance and does nothing to minimize their failures. Take for example, in the Bible we read, take the example of the patriarchs. Abraham was a great man, right? But he was deceitful. <laughs> Isaac was a great patriarch, right? But he lied. And Jacob cheated. The apostle Paul, the apostle Peter was a great guy, right? But he denied all knowledge of Jesus when personal testimony became risky to his own life. You see, the Bible tells the story as it is. All right, so make no mistake about it. Moses was a gifted leader, but he was not a flawless saint. The Bible describes not only people's failings, but those of their leaders as well. And Moses' response to the complaint of his disgruntled congregation has much to say to leaders of every generation today. And what are they? Well, let me just quickly just mention three very briefly. Firstly, you know, though verse 11 to verse 15, you read that short passage, it reads like a recital of grievances, a catalogue of dissatisfaction. Moses was right with the first thing that he did. He went to God with his woes. So that's the first lesson we need to learn, especially for leaders. When you're troubled, we always go to the Lord in prayer. So Moses was right with the first thing that he did. Secondly, I believe that leadership is always tough. And when things get tough, I think it is only natural to ask like Moses, why, Lord, why? But leaders at the same time recognizes that there is a price to pay for faithfulness by maintaining his posture as a servant. Thirdly, which also now lead me directly into my third point. A leader must never overlook the resources of leadership. Here, thirdly, God responded to Moses' despair by awaking his theology of a God that is all-sufficient, who is able to meet all your needs. Okay, so point number three, the dedicated helpers. The dedicated helpers. Verse 16, verse 17, and then verse 24 to verse 30. Reading verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take of the spirit that is in you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. And drop down to verse 24. 
So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of the elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he took up the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' eight since you spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Moses' despairing cry was a cry for help. And in verse 16 and verse 17, God's reply was to instruct Moses to choose out 70 experienced elders and officers and take them to the tent of meeting where he will meet with them and where he will empower them with the share of the spirit that Moses possessed. Now clearly here, these 70 elders and officers, they, they were acknowledged and, and uh, uh, dedicated helpers that known to the, the people. All right? So God provided Moses with the help that he needed. You see, no church leaders, no pastors can serve effectively without the support of all his church members as dedicated helpers, as the Lord provided here for Moses in verse 17. You know, from my own experience, the two most common problems a pastor faces are the inevitable loneliness of leadership and the immensity of the task. Yes, mark that, the immensity of the task. Lest any of you think that pastors only work on Sunday and half a day at that. Okay? You just don't know the immensity of the task that the workload that a pastor has. That's why the church needs a wide variety of gifted people. Okay, to help out and thus enable the pastor to concentrate on the task that he could not delegate. You know, the Bible in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 testify to the wide variety of gifts that the Lord distributes and uses among his people. But it is sad, if not tragic. You know, when believers, Christians in the church waste time coveting or criticizing other people's gifts, rather than using their own or complaining about all the problems they see in the church without lifting a finger to help. And I tell you again from my personal experience, these are the people that drain the pastors the greatest. So we read in verse 24, following God's instruction given to Moses, he gathered the 70 elders. And in verse 25, God came down as at Mount Sinai in a special visitation and gave some of the power of the Spirit which Moses possessed to the elders. Now, what are we to understand by this? We are not to understand this as implying that the fullness of the Holy Spirit 
possessed by Moses is now subsequently dismissed. Uh, dismissed. Diminished. <laughs> Diminished. Right? Since God has taken the spirit out of Moses and given it to the 70 elders. No, it's not that way. Because why? See, the spirit of God is not something that is material, right? A material thing, it is that way. Lah. You get this much, you take some away, you're only left with this much. But God's spirit is not material, all right? Which is diminished by being divided. But rather, the spirit of God resembles a flame of fire. Just like when you get a fire, it keeps burning and it burns more, all right? So that, it works that way, okay? It, it, it just resembles a flame of fire which does not decrease in intensity, but rather it increased by extension. Okay, so that's what's happening here. And so when the Spirit rested on these 70 elders, the little part of verse 25 says they prophesied. Here I believe probably, <coughs> probably is an aesthetic posture of proclaiming the greatness of God and praising the goodness of God. But this experience we are told here was only temporary. It's only a one-time event that marked their entrance into this sacred responsibility as dedicated helpers to Moses. Because he has said they did not do so again, but they returned with Moses to the camp. So from verse 24 to verse 25, we see here the promise and the encouragement for everyone who committed themselves as dedicated helpers instead of being disgruntled members. All right? Every turned around disgruntled person will never be denied the unfailing supply of the Holy Spirit's resources. Whether it be wisdom, guidance, grace, love, patience, strength, you will be generously and continually given. And God did exactly what he promised here in verse 25. Now next, I learned something interesting from verse 26. You look at verse 26. Looking at verse 26, it is evident that two of the helpers, we are told, Eldad and Medad, they went AWOL. Right? They went absent without official leave. They remained in the camp. They were not with the other 68 at the tent of meeting. They were supposed to meet the Lord. Nonetheless, we read here that they were empowered by the Spirit and they also prophesied in the camp. Now, why did they remain in the camp? Why did these two fellows not go? I don't think it was because uh, either they were sick or they were too old or you know, they couldn't move. Because if that's the case, then some, someone else would have been chosen uh, to replace them, right? So personally, I think that it wouldn't be, wouldn't be too far-fetched to believe that they were staying in the camp because these two were also upset, especially with Moses. Maybe Eldad and Medad were the ones leading this grumbling and complaining about the manner. Maybe they were so fed up with all this that this refusal was a protest. I'm not going to go. After all, isn't that the same way that we protest the things that we don't like about the church today, isn't it? Pastors does things you don't like, you'll show him by not going to church. Church is not living up to my expectation. Then I'll stay away from church. You see, the worst part, the worst part is that we are okay separating ourselves from the people of God. Separating ourselves from the community of faith. Separating ourselves from church 
COVID or no COVID. And now that the government has allowed the church to freely gather, right? Free seating, no more zoning, no testing, no nothing. I want to take this opportunity to exhort everybody to be back in church. Unless you are one of those few who belong to the vulnerable group, that you are prone to infection. Otherwise, today we praise God that the majority of us are back here in church. There's no more reason for others of us still tuning on to that Facebook platform. So I will see you back in church next Sunday. Now in verse 27 to verse 28, news come to Moses and the other helpers, the other 68 elders, when a young man reported the elders and Midas were prophesying the king. And we read in verse 28, Joshua, Moses' assistant from the youth, his youth, want Moses to stop them. But look at Moses' response in verse 29. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So in so doing, in rebuking Joshua, Moses expressed his fervent wish that all of God's people might experience such a measure of God's Spirit with him. All right, so there's no you know, need to be envious or to judge uh, people who have been greatly blessed and used by the Lord. Now, so yes, without discovering why these two gentlemen, Eldad and Medad, had not been present. Joshua, our good friend, thought that there was something improper about the manifestation of the Spirit's power. And we are in danger of that oftentimes, isn't it? Aren't we? Because God had acted in a particular way, so in this case for the 68, he could not, we could not tolerate any other deviation from this particular way. All right? So things must always be happen this way. How easy, how easy it is to institutionalize the Spirit's work. And then to endeavor, to anticipate, to organize, to monopolize His ministry. And when we do that, tragic events quickly become rigid patterns and inflexible traditions. So listen, my friends. The Holy Spirit will not be shackled by ecclesiastical customs, by the traditions in the church, no matter how good they may be. The Holy Spirit will act with total freedom to accomplish whatever purposes you know are best for His people at that particular time. I personally believe that the story of Eldad and Medad here gently rebuke any of us who because of our bias or rigidity want to restrict the Lord's work, the Lord's way to our own preconceived, prescribed ideas. If we are guilty of that, I say to you, perish the thought. Perish the thought. Let God be God. And the Spirit will always work in His marvelous, personal way. Finally, we have the most dire consequence of complaining. 
So fourthly, and finally, the divine wrath of God. Verse 18 to verse 23, and verse 31 to verse 35, the divine wrath of God. Verse 18, tell the people, consecrate yourself in preparation for tomorrow when you eat meat. The Lord heard, when, heard you when you wail, if only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you'll eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have willed before him crying, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses says, here I am among 600,000 men on foot and you say I'll give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? You can now see, you will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Then dropping down to verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp for, to about three feet above the ground, as far as the days walked in any direction. All that day and night, and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homas. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and it struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kebroth Hatarava, because they were buried. There they buried the people who had craved other food. From Kebroth Hatarava, the people travelled to Hazaroth, and stayed there. So, you see, the Israelites griping and whining and complaining was unmistakably clear and loud, isn't it? Verse 18, we're better off in Egypt. Verse 20, why did we ever leave Egypt? There's a constant refrain in the complaint. And almost immediately after the wind of the Holy Spirit had descended, Upon the 17 elders, we read in verse 31, another wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. And we are told that the wind was so strong uh, that the quails could scarcely fly more than a meter above the ground, bringing them within easy reach of the Israelites. And we read here that in verse 32, in their greed, vast quantities of quail were caught. And they started to eat this newly collected food. But look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, While the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and it struck them with a severe plague. A severe plague broke out in the camp and a large number who have craved other food we are told in verse 34, became stricken with disease, died, and were buried before the people moved on. And they looked back on the place with deep remorse, naming the place Kibroth Hatava because there, there they buried the people who had craved other food. Now I read that quails are part of the pheasant family. And uh, how much of a delicacy a pheasant is. That they only serve in, in the finest French restaurant. 
Do you know that? I, I didn't know that. <laughs> All I know is about chickens, not about pheasants. <laughs> but here, what began as a luxurious banquet, what was supposed to be a luxurious banquet, ended up as a distressing funeral. And so in verse 34, at Kibrof Hatava, the place of inordinate craving became a scene of intense grieving. God's wrath. Now the anger of God and the wrath of God is seldom preached on today. But it is a very serious biblical theme. And it's in danger of becoming marginalized in contemporary Christian preaching and thinking. Yes, God is compassionate and kind. Yes, God loves and cares for us. But God is also holy and is capable of being grieved and hurt by our sin. Discontented with what God had graciously provided in the daily manner, those ungrateful people broke his commandments and idolized Egypt's food, the licks and the garlic. Wishfully recalling those Egyptian licks and garlic, they coveted better meals. And in the wrath of God, God satisfied their craving and there's so much of it that it make them sick. And some even died. The wrath of God. You know, some theologians have claimed that God's wrath is not personal. That it is nothing but an inevitable process of cause and effect in the moral universe. What do you think of that? I think there's a bunch of crap. It's totally rubbish. I think that such a claim does not do justice to the biblical doctrine of the wrath of God. See, we have no more right to deny that God's wrath is personal than to deny that God's love is also personal. One commentator said that I quote, divine wrath is the action of a personal God who hates sin. Divine wrath is the action of a personal God who hates sin. And Swiss theologian Emil Brunner rightly pointed out that men and women are always under the power of God, either of his grace or his wrath. All right? We are always under the power of God, either of his grace or of his wrath. He insists that we are either under grace or under wrath. There's no middle path. And so here in this wrath, God gave the disgruntled, greedy Israelites exactly what they have craved for. And they suffered the dire consequences. Complaining. The deadly disposition is Singapore's national pastime.
Undoubtedly, we are also the most disgruntled society in the world. I have very little patience for Singaporeans, not just Singaporeans, but people in Singapore, living here in Singapore, calling this home, making a good life here, but always complaining and griping about our government, about Singapore. Unfortunately, the spirit of negativism has also crept into the church. The church is not spared. Christians are not spared. So no matter where we turn, inside and outside the church, people are being negative and always complaining about something. We are complaining about kids, about mother-in-law, about the pastor, about food, about housing, about finances, about CPF, along with a host of other problems. Now, we would like to think that the griping of the Israelites ends here in Numbers chapter 11. Sadly, Numbers chapter 11, sad story of the daily disposition of that human tendency to defy against God didn't stop in Numbers chapter 11. It lingers on because you look at chapter 12, verse 1. It begins with Miriam and Aaron begin to talk against Moses. Uh, don't worry one way, I'm not <laughs> going to steal the thunder from you. Uh, we'll be preaching on the Numbers chapter 12 next week. But, but uh, because Numbers chapter 11 and chapter 12 are closely related, I thought I just want to point out for us that what, how it must have grieved the leader, Moses, that besides the general populace of Israelites who grumbled, here we have Miriam and Aaron, the two people bound to him by natural blood ties, that they themselves were also seriously engaging too in their deadly disposition of complaining. I will stop at that and looking forward to hear when we preach this morning. I think it is time for us to repent and confess our sin of the sense of always not satisfied with what we have, what God has provided for us, and always griping and complaining. Let us pray. <clears throat> now, if there is someone listening this morning who have yet to believe in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, I have something very, even more important to highlight to you. And that is, there is something else that as a non-believer in Jesus, Jesus Christ, that it is, there is a far more serious issue that we face than what we are talking about this morning, about a deadly disposition. And that more deadly issue is what I call a deadly deception. A deception that originated with the devil. The deception of pride. The deadly deception that man is master of his own destiny. It is a very deadly deception that you think you can live your own life and then you chose to live your life independently of God. And so I say to you this morning that there is a deadly deception that is far, far worse than a deadly disposition of complaining. 
But thanks be to God. Our brother came to me this morning and announced our Holy, Holy Week celebration that is leading us to in two weeks' time with Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We have this wonderful news that God has provided a way out for us <coughs> of the devil's lie <coughs> by believing in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, who died for your deadly sin of the devil's deception. That Jesus' death on the cross has provided a way of escape for you and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. So what it is a daily deception, a lot worse than a daily deception. But we have good news for you because God has also solved that problem for you by providing a way out through His Son, Jesus Christ. So the question is, would you come and believe in Jesus this morning? I wish that you would. And let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I want to know the joy of being satisfied that you and you alone can provide. Forgive me, Lord, for not being content with your provision in my life. Deliver me from this unholy discontent that constantly gripe instead of giving thanks. Of this incessant complaining that things are not what they should be and pinning all the blame on our leaders and on other people. Lord, have mercy on me. Renew me by your Spirit to be a grateful, thankful, and helpful person. They were clearly evident that I'm indeed under grace and not wrath. And Lord, this morning, I also want to pray for anyone who needs to freely come under the grace of the salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and be set free from the devil's deception of the sin of self-independence which has led him in bondage for so long that this morning he will receive the free forgiveness of his sin and begin to live the God-independent life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.